Employees work hard for the leader, not for the organization. As a leader, I want my managers to care about the team. When people at Polo are deciding where to have their birthday dinner, their party, I hope and want that the club is their first choice because they have lots of opportunity to go elsewhere. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Ever wondered how the best clubs are bridging generations and innovating to elevate the member experience? Well, take a listen to GM and COO Brett Morris and Director of Culinary Operations Edward Leonard to hear how the Polo Club of Boca Raton stays relevant season after season. I wanted to start off just kind of with a little story, and I'm sure everybody in the room can think of something in their life that changed kind of the way they thought about uh, the way they run their business or kind of their management style. And uh, I was the general manager at Fresh Meadow Country Club uh, starting, I think, in uh, 2003. And it had a good run for, the, for five years. And the 2008 crisis came along where I think we all suffered. But something pretty much impacted my career that I didn't know was coming. And in December of 2008, a gentleman with the last name of Madoff, was arrested for a Ponzi scheme. Well, that gentleman was a member of Fresh Meadow for about 40 years. I knew him, I knew his kids, I knew his grandkids, I knew his wife, I did his golf outing. So I was standing on my front lawn that day, it was in December, it was like December 11th, it was like a Thursday afternoon and it was a mild day and I loved to do a lot of uh, landscaping and I, was, I get a phone call from my president and he says, uh, hey, Brett, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, Bernie Madoff was arrested uh, for a Ponzi scheme. I said, his name was Alan Kaplan, my president. I called him Cappy. I said, Cappy, I have no idea what a Ponzi scheme is. What the hell is that? So he started explaining to me what happened. And I didn't really understand the impact it was going to have on my club. We were successful. Club was making money. We were full of members. Well. In January, when members had to let the club know uh, whether they were going to continue on or not, 20% of our members resigned from the club. So I was faced with something that I had never been faced with before um, and worried that we were going to actually survive uh, as an organization. I had the press knocking on my door, people calling me, wanting to interview me. And uh, I, I'd never done something like that before, or gone through something like that but, before. But I realized very quickly that, you know, we're in two businesses, ladies and gentlemen. And the first business is the member sales and, the me and home sales business. Some of us that manage regular clubs that aren't in gated communities are in the membership sales business. Us that manage gating, gated communities, we're in the real estate business. And we survive on home sales. But the two businesses are very you know, similar and they, have, they lead parallel paths. The other thing we're in is the member experience business and they both go side by side. You can't have one without the other. Now I will tell all of you, those are some really tough times for me and things, decisions that I had to make with our board, you know, uh, forgetting about our initiation fee. That, you know, we had always prided ourselves on having high initiation fees. Well, I needed members to pay the bills and run the club. So the first thing I said to the board was, hey, look, we need to kind of get rid of our initiation fee. And they said, you're crazy. That kind of what, that's what sets us apart. And I said, yeah, 
the financial crisis is going on. I'm worried about us kind of continuing on as a club, and I was able to convince the board to forget the initiation fee. The second thing I had to convince them of is that I wrote a budget that uh, had a million dollar loss that year, and they kind of came to me and said, you're crazy. How can you write a budget with a million dollar loss after just losing 20% of our members? And I said, well, if we dilute the member experience, we're gonna be in bigger trouble than we were before this whole entire thing happened. We got lucky, we offered some deals, people came into the club, and the club continued to move forward, which, which was a good thing uh, at the time. But, you know, it's, it, it goes side by side. But, you know, let's talk about challenges. And, and the bottom line is, no matter what size of club and what you offer, we all still have the same challenges. We do. You know, I run a large operation. You know, I've got a lot of friends in the room. Matt, you know, runs a business that's double the size of mine. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, no matter what size business you run, large or small, we still face the same challenges. We do. You know, attracting the next generation of member, trying to keep your club flourishing throughout the, you know, the time and making sure we have new members coming. Declining golf and tennis participation. I think we all know what's going on with golf and tennis and trying to keep golf vibrant in our organizations. You know, competing with outside venues, restaurants, spas, and entertainment. All of us compete with that stuff. Doesn't matter big club or small club, we're still competing with outside venues. Consistency in food and beverage. That's probably the largest thing we face all the time, making sure our food and beverage operations are consistent and members obviously keeping complaints uh, to a minimum. But these are the things that you know, we struggle with day in and day out. I believe in three guiding principles. I don't know what all of you believe in here, but I think we all have our, our different you know, styles of management. But the three styles that I believe in are, number one, we need to create a memorable experience and a standard of excellence for our membership. That's first and foremost as far as club managers and club leaders. We have to keep that experience as high as possible. Number two is we can all think of one person that can brighten up a room just by leaving it. I'm sure you can all think of that person in your organization, right? I won't let that person work for the polo club because that person will kill my brand, will kill my culture, will kill my morale. And I don't care if that person is a sacred cow and they've worked at that club 25 years, they're not going to work for my, my club. They won't. And they'll kill us as managers as well because they'll never talk good about you. They'll never talk good about the staff because all they do is care about themselves. And I will not let that person work for my organization. And last and not least is life isn't fair and you'll fail. And the sooner you get over it, the better off you'll be. You know, I have, when I got to the polo club, I took on an organization that was, was, was really hurting. Hurting in reputation, uh, hurting in uh, governance, hurting in employee morale, hurting in management. It was a disaster when I took that place over. And I don't think I really realized the magnitude of what I was taking over. I came from a club in the Northeast. I thought, hey, I'm a good manager. I've worked at this club. I've been successful. I've got a good management team. I'm going to be successful at the polo club. I got to tell you, I was dodging bombs every single day. There wasn't probably a day that went by that I didn't call Michael and say, oh, my God, I got to tell you this story today, pal. And he's just like, yeah, good luck over there, buddy, you know? <laughs> 
and I also went home every night and said to my wife, what did I do? I left a club that I loved everybody. I loved the members. I loved the staff. They were part of my family. I could have retired at that club. To work at the polo club, and I, I, I can't believe I moved us here. This is a disaster. It was the worst decision I've ever made in my career, literally every day. And I called my president and was yelling at him every day on the phone. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? I was grieving members. It was crazy. It was crazy. My first event I ever did, large event, true story. Ryan's in the room, Artem, where are you, Ryan? Um, Ryan was my assistant general manager at the time. We had our opening season party. 890 people, and they used to do it around the pool, and I said, I'm going to change it. We're going to do it in the golf staging area. My president's like, you really think we should do it out there? I said, yeah, it's a bigger area. We can do more things. Let's have fun. Let's do it. He says, great. So we set it up, and it, and it worked out great. It was a great setup for the event. Now, what's the one thing in Florida we all worry about all the time? Rain, Rain right? So I'm looking at my my uh, iPhone all day long, and it's 30%, and it's 40%, then it's back to 30, and we have to make a decision, and we were going for it, and I said, we're, this is gonna be great. We, we start, party starts, and uh, everybody's having a good time, and at about 8.30, I go to Ryan, uh, do you feel rain? He goes, no, I don't feel rain, I, go, I think it's gonna rain, and when I say it poured, when I say it poured, it was like one of those storms you couldn't see like five feet in front of you. And the members are running for cover and I'm like this, oh my God, this is a freaking disaster. What am I gonna do? I was literally paralyzed. I couldn't move, I was paralyzed. I had to write a letter of apology to the members that night and offer them a 10% discount. And they were actually happy with that. I don't know how I did it, but I got away with it. But that was my first party at the polo club, and I will never, ever forget it as long as I live. Um, members are our most important asset. They're our valued customers. I think we all know that. They are our most important customers, and the club is an extension of their home. We have to make sure that our members feel comfortable all the time. It's our job to make sure that they feel welcome and comfortable. You know, they have chosen to do business with us in advance. I think if all of you think about this, we are the only industry in the world where people pay money to do business with us in advance, and a lot of money. And all we have to do is take care of them. They buy houses, they pay large initiation fees, and all they wanna do is get into our organizations so we can take care of them and make sure they feel special. It sounds easy, you know, but it's really not. The fastest way to bankrupt a company is to please everyone. Jack Welch said that. And that's something it took me a long time to learn. Because I was the guy that would go into the bagel room in the morning, and our bagel room at the polo club is not small. And that's where all the rumors start, and that's when I walk in and they're like, ah, oh, there's the general manager. You know? And I used to walk into that room and walk up to the tables that I knew were the biggest complainers to try and convert them to make them either believe in me or believe in the board or believe in what they, we were doing. And every single day I walked out of that bagel room and it ruined my friggin' day. Every day, I'd walk into my office and say, yep, ruined my day again, went into the freaking bagel room and they were complaining about this and complaining about that and I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore, this is crazy. So what I learned very quickly 
is that we can't please everybody. It's just a total impossibility. So what did I do? I focused on the 95% of the people that were happy, that we pleased, and the 5%, I walked to the bagel room and said, good morning, and I just kept on going. I just kept on moving, because I knew if I stopped at their table, they were never gonna compliment anything I did or anything we did, and you know what? It was a lot happier for me. So, excellent customer service begins with a culture of excellence. How do we do this? The selection process, the hire, hiring the best, being, hiring people that are intuitive and empathetic. I believe that if you hire somebody that's intuitive and empathetic, that understand people, we can teach them anything. And it's really important for us, and it's difficult in this market to find really good people. Because you know, in, in Florida, at least in South Florida, we're all trying to, to get the best employees. But it's, it's difficult because we have got a large amount of clubs and a small pool of people. Um, training, testing, mentoring, coaching, succession planning. I'm a huge believer in succession planning promoting from within, making sure that people that join your organization know there is upward mobility and they can grow uh, with, your, with your company. Um, creating a mission statement, reflecting your core values. I think all of you in this room have mission statements, correct? We all have mission statements. If I were to ask you guys to tell me your mission statement, a lot of people probably couldn't even do it. My board members can't even do it. This was our mission statement, only part of it in 2015. Polo Club is a member-owned private country club community whose tradition, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I would say to my board members, hey, what do you guys know about our mission statement? And they'd say, I know you, we have one. I said, do you know what it is? Because when you went for your board orientation, we went over it, and you guys should really kind of know what our core values are. And they didn't know. My management team didn't know. And hell, half the time, I'll be honest with you, if somebody were to say to me, Brett, can you state our entire mission statement? I didn't even know what it was. I really didn't. So what I said is we need to kind of, as a group, when we had strategic planning this year, we need to streamline our mission statement so people really understood what it was. So it went from this to this. The Polo Club's mission state, statement, the pursuit of sustained excellence. And how do we do that? Effective governance, board management members, enhancing the member experience, attracting the next generation, and working on operating and capital efficiencies. Uh, what I try to do is keep it short, keep it simple, keep it easy, so everybody kind of understood what it was, especially our board members and our management team. So if anybody said to them, hey, what, what are our mission statement? They could easily say, hey, this is what it is. And all of my managers have to know what this is. It's important to me as a leader that they understand this. Um, clubs used to be all about golf. Today, they're all about lifestyle. I think we're all facing that. You know, the clubs of you know, yesteryear or years gone by, we're all about golf. That was the main thing. We just did a member survey. The number one on the member survey was what? Food and beverage. That was number one on our member survey. Golf was like number seven. You know, so it's amazing. Lifestyle, entertainment, all that stuff is really important. And there's no one size fits all membership. Casual dining options, innovative dining events, interactive cooking classes, resort style pools, fitness and wellness centers, dog parks, 
We tried it at Polo Mat. We couldn't do it, even though you have it at Boca West. Uh, walking trails, billiards room, pickleball, bocce ball. These are all the things that are going on in clubs right now that are creating that experience that people really want in their organizations and, and look for. Um, attracting the next generation of golf members. Now, this is something some of you may agree with, some things you may not agree with, but this is something that we are looking at at the Polo Club. One is Top Golf. It is the hottest thing right now in our business. How many people have done Top Golf? So a lot of you. I mean, it is huge. And that is what's getting people into golf, enjoying golf, and out of the Top Golf centers and onto the golf courses. So we're, we're looking at putting a Top Golf studio in Polo where we can offer food and beverage and it can be interactive. And you don't have to be a golf member to try it because we're hoping that social members that really enjoy it will then migrate over to golf. We're also looking at golf one of our golf courses transferring it into three sixes. So obviously we know we have 18 holes and what's going on with golf? The younger generation is saying, I've got a family, it takes me too long to play golf, and they're migrating away from golf. And some of our older members that can't play 18 holes of golf, that are only playing nine, we, we're, th we're thinking about transitioning into having a course that p they can play you know, six, 12, or 18 holes and making it challenging for them because we're getting ready to uh, uh, renovate one of our golf courses in the next year or so. And, and marketing, making it fun and social. We have a street fair, which Ed will probably talk about later. You know, we get about 4,000 people that come to our street fair. It's one of our signature events, putting in like some sort of golf simulators and, you know, like a, a mini golf course within it uh, to make it more fun and exciting. Um, nine wine and dines, pop-up restaurant series, which Chef will talk about in a little bit, doing cork and fork events, food truck nights that you kind of, you know, work in with golf as well to make it fun or intera and, and interactive. These are kind of the things that we're looking at just to kind of take it to the next level to get people uh, more excited about golf at the club. Um, and Snag, I'm not, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of Snag. It's basically starting new at golf. It's a program to get people involved in golf and understanding kind of the, the metrics of golf and, and just getting them involved. Uh, in the sport. These are some of the things that we've been working on. Um, clubs are starting to invest more dollars into amenities and less uh, into their golf courses. So it's important for us to keep golf exciting, keep golf alive, and tennis as well, because it's a huge party, part of the club. Creating a culture. Never forget that the success or failure as a manager depends on the quality of your team and the culture we create. It is truly important continually push that envelope with your team. You know, great leaders surround themselves with the best and compensate them accordingly. Now, I will tell everybody in this room, one big thing that we do in our area, in Boca, and that started with Michael uh, McCarthy and Jay DiPietro about, what, 20 years ago, Michael? We share our compensation. Not only do we share it with our lower level or mid-level managers, as general managers, every year in September, October, Michael sends an email out to all of us and says, hey, list all your compensation, what your base salary is, what your benefits are. And it has helped us tremendously in South Florida, tremendously. And you know, we don't sugarcoat it because we're there to help each other. And I, I implore all of you to, to work 
you know, with like-minded clubs and do stuff like that because it is it has helped our compensation packages in our area exponentially. And and thank you, Michael, for doing that because that's not something that we did in the Northeast. When I was in the Northeast, nobody talked about that stuff. It was a great secret. Kind of people surmise what other people made and stuff like that. But we've done this in, in, in our area and, it, and it's really helped us. Um, employees work hard for the leader, not for, this, uh, not for the organization. It is true, I've had plenty of people leave Polo with managers that I've had that just didn't care much about the staff and that bothers me as a leader. I want my managers to care about the team. And I gotta tell you, those managers that didn't do that, they're no longer working in my organization because it is important for me to make sure that my team is happy. Because if my team is not happy, my team is not performing at a high level. They're just not. Um, and it's important to keep the morale of the team as high as possible. Um, this is a little something I wanted to share with you is, you know, do, your, do you make your team feel included? I think this is an important thing to having your team feeling happy, feeling happy, and feeling engaged. Um, do you ask your team members for feedback? Do you ask them what you think we're doing great and what you think we need help on? Because I will tell all of you, you may be the smartest managers you think. Trust me when I tell you, your team knows a lot more than you think they do on what's going really well and what's not going really well. Ask your team for feedback. It is truly important to listen to them because we've got, we do competitions. You know, who comes up with the best idea? How can we do things better? And then we, re we reward the team on that. Chef does it all the time in his kitchen, which he'll explain in a little while. Um, have you done an employment engagement survey? Have you listened to your staff? I have to tell you, it was an eye-opening thing for me when we've done some of our employee engagement surveys and what your staff thinks about you as a leader, and they're all anonymous. I don't, I, I don't want anybody putting their names down. Obviously, people are concerned about that, so we make sure they're anonymous because I want to hear the good, the bad, and the really ugly because if I can't change it, we've got five, over 500 employees in our organization, and there's different things that go on in all the departments, and in order for me to make it better, I can't make it better if I don't know something's going on. Do you challenge your team on how to be different in your organization? This is another thing we challenge our team with, how we can be different and how we can set ourselves apart. Um, do you recognize your team members for their accomplishments? Do you have programs to kind of engage your team and excite them? You know, do you ever take your department heads out for team building lunches and dinners? I'm a huge proponent of this. I take my department heads out at least at least three or four times a year. We go to Rocco's Tacos, we go for you know, an event at uh, you know, Capitol Grill, holiday time, and we do some other things during the year. It's amazing what happens when you get off property with your team and you guys just have a drink and talk about family, about life. Things come out of those conversations that you, that you just never knew about people. I mean, I, my CFO, Rob, who's worked with me now for six years, you know, who worked next to somebody for five years, didn't even know there were things going on in her life. And he goes, God, that, that event last night was great. We were just talking. I learned so much about Terry and some of the things that she did that I just never knew. It was a great team building uh, exercise. Um, how do you motivate your team 
to achieve the highest results. Like I said, include them in the solution. It's really important for people to feel included in your organization. Not that you're the leader or your managers are just leading people and barking orders at them and telling them what to do. People want to be included in the solution. Creating a trusting environment. Listen, I'm, I have a very busy job, as I'm sure all of you do. My door is always open. Yes, we've got a director of HR, but you can ask anybody in my organization, whether they're a department head or they're a frontline employee, they can come to my office and talk to me about whatever they want to talk to me about. Because it's important for me to know, as a leader, if somebody is struggling on my team. And that's from the dishwashers to the waiters to my director of golf. Um, focus on the tangible feedback. Look, we get a lot of feedback every day in our organizations. And I can tell you this, the Polo Club is a feedback-rich operation. Okay? <laughs> what is on their lung is on their tongue at my club. And you should hear some of the things that I hear on a daily basis. What I try and do is I try and look at the things that are the most important and kind of filter the thing and look at trends. You know, a member comes up and says, uh, all my friends, have you ever heard that one? All my friends say that the food is horrible. I'm like, really? I'm sorry, chef, I hate to tell you. I've heard that before, all right? And I'm like, really, what friends? Give me names. Give me the names of your friends. Well, it's my golf group. Who in your golf group? Well, it's so-and-so. And it boils down to kind of one person. So I like to probe members to kind of get them to really tell me. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if he tells me it's, I don't know, Mr. Simon, I'm going to go to Mr. Simon and say, hey, what's going on? I hear you're not happy with the food or you had a bad meal. And once you really start dialing in, it's not everyone. It's one person. It's two people that have the biggest mouth that love to put things down at their club. And I love people like that. I love to go after people like that because, you know, it, it's like we work hard enough as an organization and as a group to try and have people that try to kill, you know, and shoot us uh, at work every day to make our lives miserable. Um, lead by example. It's really important that, and, and you know, this sounds basic, leading by example, but it's really important that you lead your team and show the managers show the staff, show the frontline employees that you care. I mean, Ed will tell you, I walk through that kitchen, I walk behind the dishwasher, and I give a hug to some of my dishwasher and say, how's your day going? How's your family? Because, you know, we've got a lot of Haitian, Haitian uh, employees at our club, and these people are struggling over there, and they're constantly sending their money back to their family, and they deal with a lot of struggles. I want to hear about it. I want to make sure that they're good, they feel safe, they're happy working at the club, because if they're not, I want, I want to know about it. Um, creating programs to reward high performance. This is a big thing for us, and this is what we've started. It's called the Champions League. And this has been extremely successful for our organization. What is the Champions League? It's basically uh, a motivational accountability and team comp uh, competition, challenging employees to offer the best membership experience. Okay, what, are they, what is it? So the front of the house uh, positions compete amongst themselves to establish uh, goals and criterias. And a server must obtain a minimum of 30 excellent comments within a month period. 30 positive comments within a month, okay? 
The top three employees in each position are announced at the third Friday of the month during the daily lineup. We have a triple threat bonus. Um, if one employee wins for three consecutive months, they receive a clubhouse parking permit for three months. They can park right up front. What do they get? We give them a pin. It's called the Champions League pin. And we reward them with gift cards and, and different types of things. I will tell you, they walk around with that pin and the members want to know what it is. They are truly proud to be wearing that pin. And the other staff members compete with each other because they want to get these pins as well. And it's created a great culture within our organization of people that like to compete and like to get you know, different awards because they want to get um, you know, obviously great member comments and, and feel uh, like they are ahead of the group. Um, eight attributes of successful leadership. Number one, vision. Vision without action is merely a dream. If you've got a great vision and you're not sharing it within your team, it is merely a dream. Bottom line, you have to make sure that your vision you send out to your team and make sure that they are following through on it. Um, passion. Do you love what you do? I have to tell you, I've been in this business 30 years and I've had good days and I've had bad days, trust me, but I still love this business. I love interacting with people. I love the stuff that we do at our club. And I've always said to my wife, the day that I'm not happy, either where I'm working or doing what I'm doing, I, it's definitely time for a change because it's really difficult to get up in the morning if you hate what you're doing or you don't like where you're working. Um, Trust, humility, integrity. This is a big one because it takes years to build, seconds to break, and forever to repair. Always do the right thing, stay humble. You have to stay humble in this business and have humility. We all have big positions. We're all managing different size clubs. Humility, staying humble, connecting with your team is so important. Um, being a mentor, do you encourage upward mobility, succession planning? Look, this is the biggest thing for me is to be able to give back to my managers. When Ryan Artem, who's here today, got his first general manager's job, I gotta tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I almost cried. I was so happy for him. You know, he had given me five years of hard work, and when he moved up and got his GM position, not only was I happy, I was really proud of him, because it was a deal that we had when he first started working for me. And I've had other managers that have worked for me that are, in gen that are now general managers. And it is, it is incumbent upon us as leaders to grow the people below us so they can flourish, because it makes us look good. Um, being detail-oriented, it's all about the little things in life. And I could tell you story after story about being detail-oriented, making that personal phone call to a member, hearing that a member was sick and saying, how are you feeling? And that person saying, I didn't even know, how did you know I was sick? And touching people that way is really important because it's the little things in our business and we are touching people every single day of the week. It's important for us to touch everybody and make sure that you truly care about them as individuals. Having a positive attitude. Look, this is a tough one. We, we work hard every day and it's sometimes tough to have a positive attitude because we're constantly getting things thrown at each other all the time, trying to stay positive, leaving your baggage at the door. Because let me tell you, if you're having a bad day, your whole team knows it. They, they know it. Um, being visible. Oh, look, I run a big operation. I'm sure all of you run you know, different size operations, but being visible 
around the club. This is a tough one for me because, you know, we've got a 200,000 square foot clubhouse and members say, oh, I haven't seen you in ages. I'm like, well, I've been here, but it's tough for me to walk through the, you know, all the different dining rooms and all the different events that we have going on. I'll be honest with you. There sometimes are events at Polo. I don't even know they're going on. I really don't because there's so much stuff happening all at once. Being a risk taker, being innovative, progressive, and not afraid to fail. Look, sometimes as managers, we have to take calculated risks. We do. You know, I did a renovation project when I first got to Polo, and, you know, the club had done a $15 million project before I got there that turned into a $40 million project. And when, we, when I rolled out this new project, I said to the president of the club, if I'm going to live by the sword, let me die by my own sword. So that means I sign every change order, I manage the project, I make all the decisions. And my president said, happy to have you do it. Because let me tell you, when it went bad, he was going to go this way and say, Brett was in charge of that project. Luckily, everything turned out well for me when we did our project. But, you know, having cal making calculated risk, not, not being afraid to speak up in meetings because people want to hear you. Governance, this is another thing that is really important to talk about. Do you feel as though you lead the board and set the culture of your club and the future of your club? Because I'm going to tell you right now, your boards are all looking at us to make decisions. And this is something that I did not understand when I was a manager in the Northeast. I didn't. My board made the decisions. Yes, I was the general manager. I got a lot of the praise. But the board was really the one that was kind of running the organization. When I came to Florida, it was like, whoa, things are different here. I mean, really different, because everybody's looking at me now to make these decisions and setting the culture. Um, do you have an aligned vision, partnership with your board? It is important that you are completely aligned with your board. You don't always have to agree with your board. You don't. Sorry, I don't always agree with my board. I don't always agree with my president. I don't. We've had some knockout, dragout fights. I'm not going to lie to you. I always say, Apollo, we love hard. And we fight hard, trust me. And as a board, we do as well. But in the end, we respect each other and we walk out of that, that room as aligned as we possibly can. Because ladies and gentlemen, my board meetings are televised, okay? So anything that goes in the boardroom is televised throughout the channels, throughout the club. All of our meetings at the club are open. Grievance hearings, open. So if I grieve a member, I have members that might, we, should, we might as well hand out popcorn and candy because they love to come to grievance hearings. And I got to tell you, it's the best because I'm going to tell you right now, if I grieve you, you don't want to be grieved because 50 people will show up to your hearing. It's hysterical. It's like I'm an attorney and I've got to like roll out the grievance hearings, you know, and oh, Larry's here. Where's Larry? Larry's our attorney. So Larry hears about all this stuff. But, you know, it's all open. Everything that we do because we are a POA. Um, do you have measurable, attainable goals with your board? Does your board hold you accountable for goals, with your goals? Does your board give you a written review? Now, when I was at Fresh Meadow, prior to coming to Florida, I never got a review. Here's how my review went at Fresh Meadow. Hey, Brett, you're doing a great job. We don't want to insult you. What, what are you kind of looking for as a bonus? And what do you want your salary to be next year? And it was like that for 10 years. At the Polo Club, it is a completely different animal. Not only do I have a review, every one of my board member reviews me privately. I'm not allowed in the meeting. 
I have to get up in front of my board and give a 45 minute to an hour PowerPoint in front of my board. And then they review me and then they sit down and they say, hey, this is what we like, you know, want you to work on. And I have to tell you, if I've reviewed people my whole entire career, but when somebody's reviewing you, it's a little different. It's a little different. Um, does your board have a clear understanding of their roles and responsibilities? This is important as well. You know, your board needs to have a clear understanding of what their roles and responsibilities are because if they don't, you're going to have problems as a manager because they're going to be getting involved in all different areas of the club, which they shouldn't be involved in. The number one rule and only rule I believe in that the board does not manage an organization but ensures that the organization is well managed by hiring the best, that's all of you in this room, supporting the best, retaining the best, holding the best accountable, and I'm held accountable, and that's how they do it with my review, and then getting the hell out of our way. That's what boards need to do. And if your board is not doing that, you need to have a talk with your president and get your president online because that's going to affect you. Um, financial accountability. Um, everything we do for our members is, an, is subsidized by our dues. Everything that we do. And that's kind of the tightrope that we walk all the time. Do you create a balance between cost, experiences, events? That's important to do, creating a balance. Because look, even though members that are members of our club all have a lot of money, there is always a budget and there's always a tightrope. We've got 24 communities in my club. You can buy a condo for $100,000 or an estate home for $4.5 million. So what do you do to balance those costs? Because everybody is an equal shareholder, everybody. Um, are you a data-driven organization? We don't make emotional decisions in our, op in our operation. We look at data. So when a member comes up and says, hey, you guys should open the restaurant early. I just don't turn around and open the restaurant. I look at the data to see if it makes financial sense for us to open this and, and kind of what the members are looking for. You know, do you manage what you measure? Do you look at those data points and measure those data points and, and manage that accordingly? Because it, it helps you run your organization so much better. So when a member comes up and asks you a question about something, that you can physically say, hey, look, we've measured that, this, this is what we, we've come up with, and this is why we're doing it, people then understand why a decision was made. You know, do you treat your club like a business, your food costs, your inventory control, your payroll and flash reports? I get flash reports every single day on my desk. All of my outlet shops, uh, every restaurant, front of the house, back of the house, I can look and see where we're running hot in payroll, what our sales are, what our personal training's doing up in the spa. If you're not doing that, you should really speak to your CFO because it's easily done. And that way you're not at the end of the month going, oh, you, my God, we're way over in payroll. Why are our sales not where they should be? You can react accordingly to run your club uh, like a business. Communication is important. These are the different ways that I communicate with our members at the club, weekly, monthly, um, and bi-weekly, all right? And, and with all the different things that we do, text messages and magazines and our websites and Facebook and Instagram and all the different, our president's letter, rumors in the bagel room, that's a big way to communicate. If I wanna start something, I just go to the bagel room and say something and then by the next day, it's out in the entire club. That's the best way to communicate. And then people still say, we don't communicate enough with them. 
So it's really important for you to communicate with your members as much as possible. Um, listening to your members is key to the success or failure of your organization. The hum tablet. How many people in this room are using a hum tablet? Hum tablets have been really helpful to my organization because, again, when you get that member that says, everybody says the food is terrible here at the club, you've, not only do you have data, but you've got real-time data that you can share with them and say, hey, you know, you, you don't think the food is good in Bistro? Well, I, I've got 3,000 reviews and we're at like 94% in there or 92%. It has really helped us with, you know, kind of gain, gauging where we are, looking at trends, food is salty, slow service, um, all different things, uh, changing menu items. It's really helped us with that. Um, member surveys. We just did a member survey recently. You know, it's important to do a member survey either every couple of years, uh, every three years, uh, and, and we're a big proponent of that. Um, comment cards. Obviously, we've got members that are technically challenged. They're older. They don't want to fill out uh, our hum tablet or whatever. We look at these hum cards. We track these hum cards or these uh, comment cards. We call people back when there are issues in the restaurants or throughout the club. Management visibility is a big way to kind of gauge how the members are feeling uh, around the club and the success of your organization. Event and banquet surveys. We send surveys to all of our our, our uh, events and banquets. Every single one of them gets a survey. And it's important for me to gauge how we're doing with our, our banquets. Um, customer satisfaction surveys. This year, we're going to take it even a step farther. And if you come to an event at our club, you will get an email that night asking you to rate that event. All the different special events we do at the club. Um, look, times are changing. That's it, that's the bottom line. Members are looking for mobility with simplicity. Seniors and baby boomers uh, especially, and obviously uh, younger people as well. 50% to 50 of 65 and olders are using social media today. 50%. 59% check their emails two times a day. 82% of boomers check it at least once, uh, once a day. 71% check their preferred social site every single day. And Facebook and YouTube are their preferred sites. Boomers are more connected than you think. We've become a mobile world. That's the bottom line. We're always on our phones looking at different things. You know, 51 to 69-year-olds uh, who check their email on their phone, 92% of them are doing it. My mom, who's 75, is text messaging me and, you know, it's crazy. 87% um, use phone for, for texting, use mobile apps for news, almost 80% do it. 52% play games on their phone. How many are playing games right now on their phones? How many? Yeah, better be nice, all right? Um, no, and the numbers continue to increase. Gen X, 35 to 50 year olds are even more connected. Um, we connect differently because fewer people are reading printed material. When was the last time you saw a phone book thrown at your, uh, your, uh, on your driveway? Used to be with me, not anymore. But, uh, you know, it's completely different. And then this is the modern family today. How many of you have kids that communicate with you only through text messaging? You know, I'll be like in bed watching TV. My daughter's in the next room, and she's text messaging. I'm like, uh, you could come over and maybe communicate with me. And she's like, Dad, I'm busy. I got a lot of things going on. 
Instagram snaps and all the other things uh, she's got going on. And, and I'll, I got to tell you, a lot of times at dinner, this is our dinner. She's on her phone. My wife's on her phone. I'm like, can we like put our phones down and talk a little bit? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But 91.1% of adults have their phone within arm's reach 24 hours a day. 80% use it while watching TV. 75% use their phone in the bathroom. How many of us use the phone in the bathroom? Come on, let's be honest. Let's be honest, right? I do it. We all do it. All right? Uh, what's the first thing you do in the morning? Do you brush your teeth? Do you use the bathroom? Do you walk the dog? Do you make coffee? Do you take a shower? Nope. 86% check their phone before they do anything in the morning. And I'm guilty of that as well. The first thing I do is look at emails when I roll over and wake up or, or text messages. You know, this is an important thing is how to tell a story about your club without advertising. Look, I know there's a lot of clubs out there that are 501c7s that can't advertise. You know, as a POA, it's easier for me to do it. But how do you tell your story without advertising? 49% of us are on Facebook. And I have to tell you, we use Facebook a lot in my club. We are constantly posting things on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to tell our story. And people that are 501c7 can tell your story through Facebook by creating a Facebook page, by you know, uh, photographing your events and videoing your events and putting them on Facebook because you know, people that want to join your club that go to your Facebook page will see kind of what's going on in your organization and understand you know, that great things are happening. These are the different uh, sites that people are using. 49% of people use Facebook. Um, and, and these are the different things between Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. We post a lot of things on YouTube. I want people to constantly see what's going on at the club. Um, text doesn't motivate us. This is something that we posted, I think, on Facebook that got a couple views. And we turned this into video, and we got over 1,000 views. So this was a Carnegie Deli night that we were going to do at the club. And we, we took that and turned it into this. New sound? Club. It all starts on October 3rd at the Carnegie Deli Buffet at Steeplechase from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. This fabulous New York-themed night everything you remember from the good old days in Manhattan with carving stations, deli specialties, and delicious desserts. It's no question you'll love the food and fun as you enjoy the most mouth-watering Asian flavors, as well as testing your knowledge at a night in Beijing and trivia night on October 11th at 6 o'clock p.m. in the Laurels. Then feast on all of your favorites from both land and sea at the Surf and Turf Buffet with magnificent meats, savory seafood and shellfish selections, and of course, tasty sides and sweet desserts. So join us on October 27th from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. in Steeplechase. Just don't forget to pack your appetite. So when we turn that from text into a video, we got over a thousand views from our members and other people, and people love to use video. Again, mobility is a big thing. Four times as many customers would rather watch a video than read. One in four people use the internet um, in a company product. If they don't uh, have a video, they lose interest in a company if they don't have a video. Four in five people say that video engages uh, more than text. And businesses using video to grow, they grow 49% faster than people that just use text messages. Um, and studies have focused on Gen X and boomers 
and millennials demand more. That's the bottom line. Um, how many people have hashtags that use hashtags in your organizations? We use hashtags at Polo, it's a big thing. You can just hit hashtag at Polo and do a search and all of our social media stuff will come up. Great way to communicate with your members. Hashtags are important way of communicating and, and something that a lot of people are doing. Um, Smug Mug, anybody use Smug Mug in the room? We put a lot of content on Smug Mug, pictures of, uh, of all of our members. Our members can go to that site and download pictures of events that happen uh, at the club. It's a great venue uh, to share stuff with your membership. Um, the millennials are coming. This is something that we're all dealing with in our workplace, dealing with the millennials. And I have to tell you, they've challenged us to be a better organization, a much better organization, because it's really a changing workplace. And how do we understand the generation? You know, obviously it's the 18 to 34 year old, otherwise known as Gen Y. 51% um, of millennials use truster, trust user-generated content reviews. How many of you have ever looked at your organization on Glassdoor? You should really look. I will tell you it was eye-opening to me at some of the comments that, we, that I saw and stuff that I'm working on with my HR department on people that have worked at the club because if you don't think potential employees are looking at you on Glassdoor, especially millennials, they're all using these sites. Um, millennials aren't all about the money. Millennials, they want to be creative. Like I said, including them. They want growth in your organization. 45% of millennials will choose workplace flexibility over pay. It's the first time that I'm, you know, kind of dealing with people that, you know, before they get the job, they want to know how many hours are going to work, how many days off they're going to have. It's something that I didn't grow up with that we're really having to face and that we are changing you know, our business model to help uh, deal with this. And as long as you, your, your mission is clear and stay transparent, your millennials will be happy. They really will. Um, and one thing we know though, young or old, having employees that are motivated, confident, and needed will make a happier business. I just want to share a couple things before Ed comes on. Number one, I love quotes, and this is an important quote for me, is excellence perfection is not a destination, it's a continuous journey that never ends. We always have to keep our foot on the pedal. The minute you take your foot off the pedal on your organization, you're gonna have problems. You have to constantly push the envelope within your organization. And Denzel Washington says, don't aspire to make a living, aspire to make a difference. We make a difference every single day in our organization when we show up to work. Just by interacting with members and the different things that we do to create an experience for people's lives. And last but not least, every day is a great day. Think about this. We get up every single day and we go to a club. We're at whatever club that you work at. It's where people love to create a lifestyle, love to vacation at, love to bring their families to. And it's up to us to kind of make sure that those people that come there have a great day. And I have to tell you that not every day is a great day. And other days when it's not such a great day, I kind of go home and I like to relax and read a little bit. And there's a book that I've read that I want to share with you that I don't know if any of you have read. And that's about Helen Keller. And she was once asked in an interview, and I was blown away, what could possibly be worse than losing your sight? And she paused. And she said, there is one thing worse, and that's losing your vision. 
It's incumbent on all of you guys and ladies to make sure that you continue pushing your vision, pushing your envelope and your club to make sure that we offer the best experience possible to our members. Um, last but not least, I want to introduce our executive chef, Ed Leonard. I know I went over a little, Ed, and I'm sorry. Um, but uh, Ed and I have worked together now for four years. And uh, I have never met somebody in my career that is more passionate than this guy, who sends me text messages and emails and pictures about food and things that are going on around the club. So much so I'm like, dude, you need a day off. Like, it's enough already. You know, um, Ed is a passionate guy. He cares about the member experience. He loves what he does. And I have to tell all of you that in the 30 years that I've been in this business, I have never worked with somebody that never takes his feet off the pedal like Ed doesn't, like Ed does. Does or doesn't, does. But uh, listen, I'd like to share a little video with you and then Ed is gonna come up and uh, speak. And thank you. Whether entering the Polo Club for the first time or arriving back home time and time again, we consistently deliver a high level of service to create the best member experience possible. Whether on one of our two 18-hole golf courses, our 26 tennis courts, our state-of-the-art gym, relaxing spa, or family-friendly resort complex, the member experience is at the heart of everything the Polo Club does. Nowhere is that more evident than in our culinary program. Polo Club features five full-service restaurants, ranging from casual fare to fine dining. The Barefoot Cafe is our poolside bar and grill. American Bistro features an array of global comfort food. Steeplechase features our world-class buffet for lunch, then transforms into a Mediterranean restaurant and full raw bar for dinner. Winner's Circle Sushi and Craft Kitchen is our in-house sports bar. The Crown Room is our five-star steakhouse with a modern feel and a fabulous wine selection. With five unique restaurants comes variety for the members and a unique set of opportunities and challenges for the culinary team. I think the challenge for any club is, is the demographics right now. You have older members that have been on for a very long time who like to eat a certain way maybe or are used to certain food. As you start selling houses to the younger, to people in their 30s, their 40s, sometimes their 50s, they want a different experience. In, in taking the time that we have in investment, whether it's financially, the man hours, the studying, to develop and give every restaurant its identity is important because this way two members coming in, whether they're young, old, say, this is what I really like, this is the perfect restaurant for me. You can see that people want change, they want some of these different things and taste. So I think the great thing about the Polo Club is we're fortunate enough to offer that diversity. We're fortunate enough to offer some of the same items even within the different venues. We get to have a lot of fun and do a lot of different things because we're fortunate to have the places to do it. Good afternoon. 
Talk about being nervous, you know? Usually I got a sea of white coats in front of me. It's a little easier. I got all you management people. My God. I was really hoping he kept going, you know? Ken and I toss it. If you don't time him, he'll just keep going. You won't have to speak, but it, it didn't work. So today I have the opportunity to just share a bit about what I do. I'm going backwards, I think. There we go. Um, just how I look, my philosophy, and believe me, it's not perfect. We've, we've had some rough patches. My second month there, I wondered what the hell I was really doing there. We did this Asian buffet, I remember. You know, upstairs, I'm going to knock it to the park. Authentic. I was fortunate to work in Beijing and stuff. My first email the next morning was, Chef, I don't know what kind of food was out last night. And if you were all Chinese chefs, you would have been fired and sent back. And then the only thing I got to eat was crackers. I hope you're happy. Uh, so imagine that, your second month in the job, right? I'm like, maybe I should just pack up now and go home. And, and on top of it, my lead chef was from China. So kind of had some insight of what to do, but uh, we've, we prevail. So as I teach my chefs and I work with them, it's, it's kind of we always look at the past. You know, club food, of course, and club cuisine was famous for at one time for prime rib, baked chicken. Remember the red apple rings? Remember I first started in business, chefs, get the apple rings. I got the can. I looked at these things. I said, you got to be kidding me. Oh, oh, they're great. They love them. So... I think our reputation, you know, when you look at the past and where club is now and where club food is now is, is night and day. And most clubs rival great restaurants. And I think that's so good for our industry. And you see a lot of good restaurant chefs, hotel chefs have come over to the club side. Um, you know, and if you look at now is I remember lower expectations. There was golf. I remember going to Westchester and during my interview process, they kept reminding me it's a golf club chef. This is a golf club, you know, PGA events. We're a golf club. I said, well, you hire me and we'll change that, believe me. And he, they just gave me this really funny look. And, uh, but I believed in that because I, I think food is essential. Not everybody plays golf, right? Not everybody plays tennis. What's the one thing everybody eats? Does, they eat. As I found out in South Florida, they really love to eat. I've never seen a place consume so much food in my life. Um, you know, strict ke kids were discouraged. You know, Brett talked about the family experience. I remember kids being discouraged. We created this event in Westchester one time about, is a, a midnight event that we now do at Polo, where we put clocks in on New Year's Eve, and we put the clocks three hours ahead. So when midnight came, the kids are excited, the ball's dropping, and they're going crazy. It's only night at night. Parents are happy because they get them to bed, they get to enjoy their night. But I remember me older members coming through the hotel lobby and looking at all the chaos and said, one just looked at me and says, who thought of this? I said, I did. She goes, when I was a member, my kids, they were seen and not heard. This is ridiculous. We have this kind of thing going on in the club. And yet we had 700 people, happy families having a great time, but a different demographic, different time, right? Um, I look at buffets and, and how they've come. You know, and you know, you look at the past, at the skirting, the bundled skirting, then the stretch skirting, and the future. And clubs didn't necessarily lead the way. Okay, Four Seasons, the Ritz Carlton, the Fairmont Hotels. Uh, when I worked for my British company, taking furniture, taking older tables, taking display units, and getting rid of the skirting and the stretching altogether is going to be the new wave. And you see a lot of these companies coming out with more and more stuff that way. Um, the present, I think, pretty much with everybody, is modern presentation, a lot of ethnic influences. Um, we look at the dining venues, and we look at the whole event. You know, it's, it's not just about the food anymore. It's the whole social event from start to finish. 
Um, and not every plate looks like that that goes out of my kitchen, so please don't get the wrong idea. Uh, we have turkey sandwiches. We have the open-faced turkey, you know, all that stuff. And, and we do get to play and, and do a lot of great things. And I think, too, a lot of people have changed. They're well-traveled club members. You know, they travel a lot. They go to these countries. So when you do Italian night, of course, they went to Italy. They now know what your Italian night should be. And um, so you have to deal with a little more educating people or, or their likes or preferences are a little different. Um, so the present to us, you know, children are welcome. You know, even us during holiday week and even now during the school breaks and stuff, we see a lot more kids present. We do a lot more kid events. Relaxed dress codes. I had a buddy in Houston, he works at River Oaks, and they took one of their sacred restaurants and they actually allowed jeans. Expensive jeans, of course, but jeans. And because people, that's what they would complain. My jeans cost more than your suits. And, you know, they get, but by doing that, he increases business 35% because people felt comfortable going because their other option was going to the restaurants that were allowing it. And pretty much anywhere today, I remember being at uh, Ritz Carlton, actually, New York City, and there were people in the dining room with t shirts and baseball caps. And, you know, you look at that because it's a Ritz, right? And I'm like, wow, how, how does that happen? And I remember having a meeting at one of the uh, hotels, and people are in their gym clothes, and, you know, and I was talking to the manager. He goes, Chef, I said, our room rate is $600 a night. They made it clear to us. They're paying that much for a room. They can dress any way they want in the restaurant. Otherwise, they will stay somewhere else, too, and that's where we make our money. So we've seen a lot of times change, and clubs are, I think, still more civil, but they're getting more relaxed, influenced by marketing and social media. You know, clubs are private entities for the most part, but yet the social media, the commercial sector, I think plays a lot to do with, with how we have to react and how we have to draw our business. Social conscious food, dietary needs. How many cater, you don't have gluten-free issues, do you? You know, our country, right, only 1% have celiac disease, but in the club world, 40% all have it. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, everybody, ah, I can't eat gluten. Gluten's evil. Okay? And then, so we have to deal with that. No sugar added or no sugar desserts. Um, and then most of all, the experience. And that's, I think, all of us, we try to create the experience. And it's the beginning of the new employee. You know, the new generations that are coming forward and how we, we have to work with those. So we have challenges. So when I look at the future and talk to my team, it's about that experience. It's about innovation. Innovation is very important to me. Um, chefs are criticized as artists, temperamental, a lot of things, I think, sometimes. We're really nice. We're nice people. How many were chefs in their past? Go ahead, raise your hands. You used to cook. It's okay. Not too many. Wow. Okay. Sad. Um, <laughs> opportunity and growth, and the future is change. And change with purpose. You know, I remember every club I've ever gone to, there's the sacred things. You know, members like everything the way they are. Don't touch anything. Members love things the way they are, chef. Don't mess with anything. Okay, not sure why you hired me, but I get it. Don't touch anything. And yet, honestly, everywhere I've ever been, and my colleagues, when we go, change is good. And most members want change. And the younger demographics, the new members coming in, whether that young demographic is 50 or 40, they want change. Now, there's people who don't. There's people like, you know, we have our bistro restaurant, which I think Brett mentioned was 92%, is actually 97% satisfaction. I got all this on film, so when I get my review in a couple of months, remember what he said in the opening, too? I have a lot of witnesses, so. Um, <laughs> and then I'll take the fresh metal approach of where do I want to be with my salary. Um, 
So <laughs> it helps. <laughs> but um, okay. So so I look at <laughs> so I look at the commercial sector, which is now over a nine hundred billion dollar industry. And the one thing I've always believed in, even way back when I, when I worked in New York to now, is independent restaurants, chains, that, that's our competition. You know, I tell the chefs, when people at Polo are deciding where to have their birthday dinner, their party, I hope and want that the club is their first choice, whether it's one of the venues, where they want to hire a private room, because they have lots of opportunity to go elsewhere. So if we don't think we're competing with the commercial sector at some point, we're fooling ourselves, because that drives it. And sometimes, honestly, I don't understand a lot of it. Because I go to some of these places they love and they tell me how great they are. And I sit there and have my meal and say, you got to be kidding me. If I actually served what they served at the club, they'd kill me. But here it's okay. You know, and I can get away with going to these places locally. You know, Brett can't. They know who he is. They spot him. But I wear a chef coat every day. I wear a suit once. They don't even know who I am. I remember being in Madison's Bar and Grill. I took uh, Ferdinand, a couple of chefs came to visit and went to dinner. There literally were four members next to me. Two near the hostess stand complaining about where their table was. So I said, okay, that's consistent. I like that. They, <laughs> I laughed at the restaurant people. You got to deal with this. But none of them knew me. I'm standing there and I'm like, oh my God, why did I do this? And not one person said a word. I said, that's good. So wearing civvies is a good thing. But, you know, I feel that drives the business. And when I teach my chefs, you know, the members belong, they support it, right? They eat out. They have dining preferences that are shaped by it, whether it's Houston's, whether it's Seasons 52, there's places they love or local eateries. They are a competition, but to me, it's also a place where we get the concepts. Because some of the things they do, whether I agree, disagree, if the members love it, it's something going good, we either copy it, we improve it in a lot of cases, I think, sometimes. But we, I do look for that, the top hotels, what are they doing, what, what new events. Um, and we all know members' behaviors are different when eating out than dining at the club. They'll wait 25 minutes at Houston's. They won't wait five minutes here, even though they have no reservation. You know, So their behavior patterns are a little different than, you know, because, of course, they have privileges at the club. I think technology is way ahead than clubs right now, you know, from whether it's ordering on pads, whether it's the technology of how you sit, making reservations in advance. You know, there's definitely some things I think the club sector can grab to help us. And they have a financial advantage to some degree. It's called beverage. You know, the, what they can charge for drinks and bottles of wine is a, is a little different, at least in our club. You know, so I get a lot of members say, well, I can go to so-and-so and get the lobster $10 cheaper. But yeah, but you're also paying $10 more for that bottle of wine or double the price for a beverage. And, you know, they have those things. And, you know, we have a thing called Thirsty Thursdays. It was a bad concept. It's in its third year running. So last Thursday, Thursday was flatbread night. I decided to theme them because sometimes I do not let well enough alone. It started out as hors d'oeuvres, just handing people different hors d'oeuvres. And they'd come to eat. You know, one member walked out once, saw bread, said, yeah, this is great. I had dinner for $10. So we decided to theme them, slider night, flatbread night. Flatbread night had 480 guests upstairs. Our restaurant only had 57 reservations. They get a, bottle, a glass of wine. They share a drink, some of them, half price. So basically, it's now dinner. They line up before we open. We've had to shut the doors to Traditions Lounge because 30 minutes, they're, they're, they want to get their table. They want to get the exact spot. We've had people downstairs ask, well, can't we get some of the hors d'oeuvres from upstairs? It was too crowded. <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> so, but it's become, honestly, we, we go through probably anywhere from two to 3,000, 4,000 pieces of food every Thursday night. 
it's become almost a fr feeding frenzy. And I can't wait for the three months to be over. And then our restaurants suffer, and they want it extended. But it's an experience. They really enjoy it. They're dancing. There's music. So it has a lot of pluses. You know, and at the end of the day, as I tell the chefs, because they get, oh, how can they eat this much? And we're losing all this money. But it's their food. It's their, it's their money. You know, either way, they're paying, you know, the subsidy or whatever. So give them what they want. But it's a night that creates goodwill. And even theming them as crazy as it was, they're happy. You know, slider night's a little challenging because then they think you can do burgers to order. Somehow burgers to order for 400 guests <laughs> coming out of the kitchen is a little challenging. But it, it definitely is good. Um, trends, you know, I'm not a big trend guy. I follow a lot what goes on in the industry, but, you know, to me, what's sustainable definitely is I think dietary needs aren't going anywhere. I think more and more people, because of the marketing of big companies, the marketing of the sugar companies and these people that mislead them, they all have their perceived notions on dietary, and we do have to work with it. And it is a constant battle because, surprisingly, you know, even when it comes to gluten-free, no sugar added, when you look at the big food service companies, they don't have a lot of product. Even a top company like, I think, Sweet Treats makes a lot of desserts and stuff, they don't have a lot of options in that area. So evidently, there's not a big market for it. And even when we put out the separate tables and dress it all up and put all those items, half the time they're going in the garbage at the end of the night because there's not that many that really want to indulge on them. So, but it's definitely not going anywhere, so it's something we have to keep track of. You know, I think healthy food, where people think food come from, is important. Um, the biggest thing now that I saw even at NRA is plant-based foods. You know, Boston and I went to NRA show, where there's literally an aisle, and I think, Matt, you were there, plant-based foods. Breakfast, sausage, there was actually a pulled pork that didn't have an ounce of pork in it. it plant-based, but this is what's going on in the market. It was even one that was tuna fish. That was nasty. Look, and it looked like tuna. It was scary. Flaked, it looked like it. it. didn't taste anything like tuna. And all done on plant base. But they convince these people that it's healthier for them. You know, you look at the Beyond Burger, they're on the stock market now. The Impossible Burger is getting ready. Five years from now, the medical community is going to have a big field day with all this. There's something in that stuff. I don't care what planet's it's coming from, what it's coming from. If it cooks like a burger, you can serve it medium rare, but it's made from a plant. Something's funny going on. But... <laughs> People love this stuff. Um, I think a new thread is uh, foom home, home delivery. And honestly, that's cooked and uncooked. And I talk about both because, you know, I was watching the other day, you watch TV, McDonald's is actually advertising full gear now, their partnership with Uber. And the way they've approached is they bring happiness to your door. And they show offices, people at home, the kids in the morning, the McDonald's, Uber driver shows up at the McDonald's, everybody's happy. I'm not sure why they're happy they're eating that stuff, but they're happy. But people don't want to go out. They don't want to leave. So, and as a club, you know, even a gated community, that's part of our challenge. You know, there's Lyft, there's Uber Eats coming into the, the driveways now, you know, delivering to the home. So you know, we're trying to get more creative on maybe a pizza delivery program, our home delivery program, maybe trying to expand it because that's our competition that's taking away you know, from our dollars. And it's going to grow and grow. Even the ex-CEO of Uber is working on something called Angel Kitchens in New York where he's actually buying space, putting in kitchens just to, for food delivery. And he's gonna team up with Uber. You know, I think the challenge is gonna be is most people when they order Uber Eats and stuff, they do from trusted restaurants that they like and know, will, it go, will they go for places that they've never been to that just, you know, focus on that. But it is something happening because people love convenience, they want things to their door. Um, 
you know, healthy ingredients. And when you look at like HelloFresh and some of those, but you know, when I look at these things, I, I, I tell my chefs, you can learn from everybody. So even when I look at the advertisement there, right? What are there, some of those key words they have? Convenient, healthy, delicious, sustainable, having, having it your way, your choice, your schedule. And we all know our members love to have it your way. When Burger King made that commercial, they had no idea about club members. Because it's, you know, we laugh. We, we spend all this money getting these beautiful screens in with our new system for the restaurants and stuff. But when you get a 12 top, and that 12 top's got 36 red lines, the screen doesn't work anymore. It's, you know, we keep sliding and sliding. We can't see any other table, so we're sticking with our printers sometimes. But when you look at their key words, those are the same words we try to emulate then and try to offer to members to, to let them know because it, it does work, and I think there's things we can learn. Um, I think evolution in today's climate, food and beverage, is a new benchmark. I think it always has to be improving, always has to keep changing. And, and it is something that's where the innovation is important to me, over creativity. We have a new labor market. And I think creating that experience is based on innovation, hospitality, and quality. And it all has to go hand in hand. Good food's important, but it's also, that's why some of the big, most successful restaurants spend millions in decor or their look or what happens when you walk to the door. So you go and you go, wow. So, and sometimes when they go, wow, the food's better. You know, it's true, right? When a member sits down and they're pissed off already, if they waited 30 minutes, the hostess has pissed them off, the waiter's pissed them off, there's not a thing I'm doing in the world. And it's always the kitchen's fault anyway. So, you know, seriously. Brett was having lunch with fellow GMs, and one of them said, oh, do you always blame the chef when things go wrong? He said, sure, why not? You know, so it's just the way, right? We always get blamed. So hopefully we want them to sit at least happy so we got half a chance to succeed, you know? Um, so I, I think all this evolution, I think, to, for our success, even as club, is stay connected with the social media and technology, and you saw Brett talk about that. We're working on a lot of two-minute videos now. Even when we launched uh, our new restaurant concept, which I'll talk about last year, we actually did a small video on it and sent it all to members prior. So we got them excited, and we got them a little ready for what was coming, and they watched that a lot more than reading about it. Um, you know, restaurant branding, so we're branding our new look. We're actually in the middle right now. We, we're doing a $2 million project at our Barefoot Cafe near the pool because we've outgrown itself. So we're expanding 60 seats. We're increasing the kitchen by 50%. And as the boss says, I've overspent in very expensive equipment and toys, like my $37,000 pizza oven. Um, Trying to get it to 36, though, boss, don't worry. Yeah. Rotating venues for events, you know, we've tried that. Specialty dining, pop-up restaurants. We actually, last Friday night, did a Beijing night with Peking duck being carved outside everything. And we keep it at an intimate number. So I top reservations at 120 because we want it to not be a mass experience. It really is what it says. Now, pop-up restaurant, to me, is a pop-up, right? You announce it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this great thing. Reservation calls me, chef, what's the pop-up restaurant? They want to know. Chef, I said it's not until three weeks. I know, but they want to know before they make a reservation. So the surprise of the pop-up kind of fades, and we have to let them know. But most part, it's sold out before they do get the final menu. Um, so those things are, are cool, and we keep it intimate. It's always got a wait list, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes we're so used to, especially, and that's the restaurant mentality and hotel mentality for me, is you do something well, you have a special night, and there's a wait list, people can't get in. That's a good thing. In clubs, when I first got to the club, well, it's a bad thing. You have to, they have to, you know, you have to get the wait list in. No, we don't. 
Let it be something they aspire to go to. Let it be a high demand item next time they'll make the reservation earlier. I think there's nothing wrong with having some of those things if your operation can have that. And that creates excitement and it's true. So even my, I have one in two more weeks and I finally let the menu out before I left, but it was, it was sold out pretty much. There was only 10 seats left before they knew the menu. So we're gonna do a Mediterranean night, but I'm sure once they see that, we'll have a wait list again. So a lot of them just, they know it's gonna sell out or saving the space. And I, I think that that's a good thing. Um, family events, so you know what I started at Westchester, so we do bulk of midnight as well, which has now grown to over 600 people. So New Year's Eve, we take our bistro, we do a big buffet, kid-friendly, adult-friendly, but we put the clocks out there, the DJ, the balloons dropping, and it's become one of our three uh, events that's, again, that one sells out before anything because you can see the family dynamics is such a part for especially the younger generations we have. And sustainability, you know, we do focus on this and you'll see some pictures of honey and things that we do. But honestly, a lot of it's over marketing hype from restaurants to chain restaurants, you know, Subway Fresh. What the hell is Subway Fresh? Tomatoes, lettuce has always been fresh last time I checked. And what Subway uses isn't very good, let alone fresh. You know, the break bread. So a lot of it is still marketing, but there's only so many farmers that can do so many things and do so many artistic things to supply the demand. You know, it's just fat, but it's become a big marketing ploy and having a story. So we do try and do things that have that story and let the members know, hey, we are buying right for you and we are trying to do things for you. Um, R&D sessions, which I'll show you, are pretty big for us. Um, you know, quick snapshot. So again, all the venues we have, I'm very fortunate to have that kind of playground where we can do a lot of things. Um, and food matters. This is so every year I come up with a different mantra. I come up with a different theme because I believe culture is essential. And the club has a culture. The club has a mission statement, but I have my own culture and I call it a culture within a culture. It ties in the polos culture, but I believe food and beverage is a different animal. You know, culinary is a different animal, you know, from how we operate to how we run. You know, the administration's people, you know, it's five of five, they're packing up and they gotta go home. The paperwork waits. You imagine the restaurant if we did that? Imagine we're running late. Oh, man, we, we ain't going to make it tonight. Let's just, we're going to close the place. Sorry, guys. Mise en place a little slow. The truck didn't come in. But everybody else takes off. We can't do that. Hell, high water, no matter what happens, man, that restaurant 530, we better be ready for service. So we have different challenges. So to me, I develop a culture that's a little different. I get the chefs together. I get the internationals together. We have a lot of meetings. I have a lot of presentations. So they, because everybody has to be on the same page of that culture. And that's essential to me. And part of that's delivering the experience, making sure we do the things the members want, try to do it in a different way. And a lot of it is resources, you know, from our smoker to different grills. And how do you achieve things that sometimes can't be achieved? You know, so our last um, closing party, our end of your celebration, we want to do a lobster bake. Now, the golf and grounds guy would not let me dig up the golf and grounds. You know, I tried to tell him, well, lobster bake, let me dig it up. We'll put the nets down there, and then you can fix it all later. No, they did golf. Set golf sacred land. You know, they don't actually do that stuff. So what we did is I met with an engineer, and we actually bought the stainless steel uh, drums. My restaurant chef is actually very good friends with the CEO of, of Uniline. So we got a good deal on these stainless drums. We cut them in half. Maintenance worked with us, made metal um, saw horses. So we, we lined them, we did the tars, we put the seaweed down, the hot stones, and we actually did a above ground lobster bake. 
which was really cool. So that's what I challenged my guy. And that's to me what innovation is. How can we achieve the result we want, even if we have some challenges to achieve it? And when members came up, and you see you know, one of them's there with the lobsters, but the steam coming out of everything, the water, the hot rocks, it gave that feel for that night of, of doing a lobster bake. And that was important to us. Um, one of our new concepts, Craft Kitchen, we took our what was the 19th hole, and there's some golfers that hate that we did this, so we're going to look for a new place for the 19th hole next year. Um, but Craft Kitchen has been extremely successful. We have a sushi bar in there. We took a more, even the menu, as you see, is a modern chalkboard kind of approach. And, and when you talk about the demographics and what Brett said earlier, you can't please everybody. You know, so where do you go sometimes is because, yeah, there's some people that hate that. You know, they looked at that and said, Chef is off his friggin' wall. What is wrong with him? You know, I got a comment. It, it was, it's too young. The menu's too young. Because some of the, again, much older members, but then we have that demographic that loves it. Then we have the demographic that says we don't do enough electric food. We don't do enough modern things. So that's our balance. And I let it all kind of ride with statistics. At the end of the day, that restaurant has increased sales by over 200,000 compared to last year. So how do you argue that? From the boss going to the board, from us justifying what we did, and maybe those members that really don't like it, $200,000 over last year, and we're still only eight months into the season, that's kind of hard to argue with. So that shows us, you know, it's a risk, right? But if it backfired, you can always go back. But we try to go forward, and this is, you know, fortunately been very successful. We even try to have more fun. Even our desserts, um, very dietary up here. So what the boss didn't tell you when he's at home at night, supposedly reading books, I get texts and emails at 10, 11 at night. Oh, chef, what do you think of this? And I go to YouTube, and there's some housewife doing this little fancy thing when, you know, the video where they make it all mixing, and it all comes together. He goes, what do you think of that? I say, yeah, that's great for five people at home. <laughs> okay, it's cute. Sometimes I don't respond, and he gets me the next morning. Oh, you didn't like my video? But... Once in a while, once in a while, something comes true. Give me a little more credit. Come on. No, I just did. So that you see those two spring rolls up there. He sent this to me. They're actually the banana. Food network, guys. The food, food network. <laughs> banana spring rolls. And they're actually bananas with custard in. Now, the video he sent me, they use instant pudding and stuff. So, of course, we're going to change it and we're going to make our own custard. But they're actually incredible. And actually, we take them out of the fryer. We roll them in vanilla, uh, vanilla cookies. Remember, your mom, vanilla? We grind them up. We roll them in there. And then caramel all over them. They're really good. And then we make a Cinnabon sundae. We actually make, we got the recipe almost down to like the chain where we have Cinnabons. So a hot Cinnabon, cream cheese icing, pecan ice cream, caramel sauce, house-made pecan pralines. Man. Your calorie intake for the week, trust me. I got some things from the board members saying, Chef, how many calories are in this so I know how many spoonfuls to take? But we sold 25 the other night. So, and they share it. So we've tried to take a fun approach sometimes, too, and do things that aren't necessarily so modern. But let's have fun with the pastries and desserts, and you do come up with some good things, boss. So, you know, imagination and teamwork, that's why I always said, that's uh, Brett's new car. Um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, so we took risk. And one of the things was, honestly, we were struggling with Steeplechase, one of our restaurants. Sales were, were not very good. And we kept trying different things. Uh, Brett happened to eat in New York one day at a very Greek place that he really loved, told me about the experience. 
So I looked it up, we went through it, and um, we actually redeveloped. So we took Steeplechase, renamed, we kept the name, but put it under Mediterranean Restaurant. And one of the biggest things, so if you can see in the slides, we actually did fresh fish display, we did shellfish display, we had a raw bar. Now, Steeplechase, we've been buying the same fish from our five vendors for the past, you know, since I've got there. I'm on year four. So when we opened that concept, I started watching the dining room. Members were called, chef, we don't know what you did. I would never eat the fish here for three years. This fish is great. This, it's like all of a sudden, our fish was now the best fish in Florida. The same fish I bought many times before, the same vendors. But you can, you know, when they walked in and saw a whole fish sitting there. Then one night I even had a busy night. We had this fish, uh, chef out there filleting the fish. So they would order. We put five different fish out there. You pick one, we filleted it. We went back there and cooked it. That mind perception, just creating that experience convinced them the fish was good. I probably could have served frozen fish all week and they still would have loved it, you know? But so it, it shows you, and we took the risk. Um, one of the things too, which is real cool, I had the pleasure of working with Thomas. Thomas loves to get toys and different china and stuff and that glass tower. And we took that glass tower, we filled the bottom with hummus. Then we had tzatziki sauce, olives, and then we took the top glass where they can put the olive pits and we served it with warm uh, things. So when they first sat down, that was the first experience with the Mediterranean restaurant. And that to me is innovation. It's looking at things that creativity is fun. Creativity is cool, but creativity is not sustainable. Innovation is sustainable, and that's what we try to focus on a lot. In that restaurant right now, so between that and Craft Kitchen, we're actually 600000 plus over last year's budget between both restaurants. So, And yet, wasn't without some bumps and bruises because we took away the tablecloths. And Brett was getting emails. How dare you? How can you take away tablecloths from a nice restaurant like this? Because they always had tablecloths. But the majority enjoyed it and, and liked it. So uh, last thing I'll touch on, because I, I know we're tight on time, um, R&D sessions. Every year I do a lot of from vendors coming in with display to us even looking things like Drake's Ringdings and having the pastry shop challenge them, come up with Ringdings. I want that recipe except with real food, not chemicals and shit that lasts for two months on the shelf. Our Ringdings will go bad at least in a couple of days. They won't still be here when hell freezes over. Um, but we do a lot of that stuff, and, and it, it pays off. So every chef, every cook gets a chance to innovate. They get a chance to present to me. I do an outline. We do tastings. And for them, it's a pride thing. They get to contribute. Then we keep a book of that stuff, and some of those things make it on, on the menu. And sometimes I'll name, you know. It's those little things that really get them going. You know, Stevie's baked beans. You know, I have a chef, Steve Goldstein, and members love baked beans. And you can't, I found out in Dubokka, you don't serve hot dogs without baked beans. It's a marriage. So when he makes them, we write his name on the menu. He gets real excited and happy. Um, and innovation for me is actually taking a lot of old customer favorites. Caprese salad, everybody knows that, right? Very popular. It's been around forever. And yet from that salad, we derived a uh, crispy one where we fry the mozzarella. We do olive oil poached tomatoes. Um, another one is a takeoff with the pasta, fresh burrata with a fresh tomato sauce. Um, this one here, we make fresh house-made mozzarella. We tie it in saran wrap, put a little micro basil so the kind of the mozzarella ends up looking like the tomatoes. Um, this one here is a very modern one that a client wanted. And then the ultra one we did for a wine dinner where we actually did a tomato water cocktail. We did a frozen basil pop. Um, but all of that came from that one dish that's been around forever. And then I find by when members have a familiarity with something, you know, when you call it caprese style, they know what that is. They're more apt to try something. You know, if it's something way out there that you call it, they're very hesitant sometimes. But when it's got something familiar there, so we spend a lot of time doing that. 
Um, you know, even pastry innovation. So those are, uh, we had the men's member guests. So I had the pastry shop. We made cigars. So we made cigars with these wafers. We, we did the whole thing. And we actually had, we hired some women to come in and pass the cigar boxes. And they all walked around. And some, some of the guys, want, they didn't know they were pastry. Oh, wow, cigar to smoke. I mean, because we, we got them to a point where they, we looked at cool. So we spent a lot of time just looking at new things and what, what can we do that's innovative and, and, again, to give that experience. And sometimes clients do drive it. It's not us being creative. We had a mitzvah come in. She insisted on having chicken and waffles. The catering director says, Chef, you're not going to like this. You're not going to want to do it, but she wants chicken and waffles. So I said, we'll compromise. We do chicken and waffles my way. And they came in for a tasting, and that's what we did. We did a sweet potato waffle, a different waffle, the fried chicken. I did carrot chips. And then we took the little uh, things with the ma real maple syrup in there that they can inject into the waffle, and she loved it. She just wanted something very different than the normal, you know, fish and meat. So sometimes even our clients help us drive this stuff. You know, milkshake stations, just taking milkshakes into a dessert level. So, again, creating the experience. You know, and sometimes things don't even get eaten. You know, I met the me women's member guests, we did a huge donut wall, create a big spindle wall. They took pictures. Those, th their phones are out there, take them. They didn't eat any donuts. Most of the donuts went to the staff and the patients, oh man, this was a waste of time. Why did we do it? I said, no, it was not. We created an experience. They took pictures, they took photos, they were sending to people. That's our achievement. Whether they ate it or not, I don't care. They're talking about it. They thought it was cool. Yeah, they don't want to eat a big donut, but. You guys get to eat them, and we, we made people happy today. So sometimes, and then, of course, even the lifestyle. You know, you can either fight it, argue it, or embrace it. We've decided to embrace it, and again, we try to get a little creative. This is actually the, Brett told me one day to put chopstick on the menu in Bistro. I didn't know, you know, chopstick, a big hamburger, I said. And they love chopstick, so Bistro is one of our top sellers. So what we did is we took the Beyond Burger meat, we make it into a chopstick, mushrooms, onions, and it's one of our top vegan sellers right now. They think it's healthy. There's no meat, of course, it's vegetarian. Little do they know that every four ounces of that Beyond Burger is like 270 calories. So it's about a 700 healthy calorie meal. But it meets all the dietary requirements. So we even did a loaded baked potato. So again, trying to take something familiar that people love, and we make the... Uh, the fondue, it's out of actually sweet potato and tofu. So we, we've played with that. And then we do the ground meat again. So we took a familiar item that people love and give it to them in a vegan and vegetarian way. So I don't get close on time. Sustainability, of course, we focus on. You know, we have 20 beehives, so we do honey. And we try to tie it into a lot of what we do. Um, last but not least in the slides is invest in a team. Like Blurt said, we, we have challenges. It's a new different work you know we have people sometimes they're making 35 dollars an hour overtime in season and they say chef can you cut back on my overtime and you would think right at 35 they want to work less they want that balance so we've tried hard to do that even since april you know the relationship with the chef gm um there's a chef thinking is he for real then of course there's a not sure what he doesn't get i'm the boss then my favorite one is yes you used to be a chef 15 years ago got it um Maybe so. <laughs> I don't always say I don't say that out loud, but I, I do I do think about it. <laughs> and then I think that 15 years ago it was what prime rib and stuffed chicken breasts. I don't know what the hell they were doing, but <laughs> but you know working close together, and I think that's important. Micromanagement, trust, and, and honestly, with Brett, he's he's been a great supporter. He 
gives it to me sometimes and he does blame me when it does go wrong. But my toys, my ideas, taking concepts, he's extremely supportive. He wants to see change. He wants to see that. And even when I have the failure sometimes, you know, he's the one to tell me, hey, stop taking it personal. Just it's a miss, but look at all the good things. Let's try something else again. And, and that's what we work on and do. And I think that's important to have that. And then just make sure, you know, your chef, passionate, committed. I, th I think that's essential, man. You got to get out of every day. You got to love what you're doing. I just, even when I start writing menus, I get excited about what we're doing. Do they share the vision and then some? Is there complacency? And I work with a lot of chefs. I have a lot of friends in this business that I try to coach and mentor, and that's the number one sin. When they get complacent and use the excuse, oh, the members like it as it is, that's laziness. Because that's, that's never how you go forward. You know, make sure they're a leader. They have a culture of excellence. Are they old school? Or are they progressive? And be a mentor. Most of all, I think it's the more important. Of all the achievements I've been blessed to have, my biggest one is all the people that are chefs now, mostly in clubs and hotels, that write to me, thank me, still keep in touch, and we talk. I, I think that's the best thing you can ever do. So in summary, you know, I think we need purposeful change. I'm a big agent of change. You know, I'm not a, yeah, you don't hire me if you want things status quo. You probably got to reel me in a bit and beat me up a bit, but I'm going to keep pushing and pushing. I think change with purpose is essential. It grows. It makes your club who it is. It, it makes any hotel property, any top restaurant. It's those people that drive, drive, and drive. Learn from the commercial sector. Adapt as needed. Keep current, and I think that, that is really important regardless of some of the demographics. Stay connected. Have passion. And it is a buzzword. You know, I interview so many people. I have passion. You know, I want to be a chef. And, you know, I have people coming out of the closet. They want to be a chef. I always wanted to cook, and yet they're engineers. So, um, you know, 20 years ago, something was amiss. But that word to me really has meaning. I think it's an overused thing. But passion is when you really do live and breathe what you do. And not every chef does, not every cook does, not every worker does. And those are the kind you, you want to at least try and harness and, and do. You know, passion's when you go home at night and you've had that rough day, and yet you're still thinking about what you can make better tomorrow. Or you're still reading a cookbook. My ex-wife, that's probably why she's my ex-wife, used to get pissed. <laughs> you, I'm not charming all the time. Uh, f 15 hour day, I used to go home and what do I do? I, you know, I'd sit, I make my coffee, espresso, and I sit and start reading cookbooks. She just, are you nuts? Like, aren't you done? You've had enough? No, I really I want to get this, you know, I want to look for some new things and the door gets slammed and it wasn't a good night for me. Um, <laughs> uh, balance and hospitality, I think that's important. Even though chefs are, and people are in back of the house, I think still hospitality is key with each other with the front of the house and with the members. That's what makes it all work. Your relationships, of course, is essential. I'm very fortunate. I have people who work for me for a very long time in many different states. So glad I have a few moments to share with you what I love to do. Have a great conference. And thanks for welcoming the chef. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.